Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson. On today's show, we've got two rock superstars. In the second half, the man who was brought up on the Stones and the Beatles and became a very successful and influential member of Genesis with multiple album credits and countless live tours. He is Steve Hackett. But first, Andy Fairweather-Lowe, guitarist, songwriter, producer, and singer. He founded Amen Corner in the 1960s and achieved massive chart success with songs including Bend Me, Shape Me and If Paradise Is Half As Nice. In the 70s and 80s, he worked with Roy Wood, Leo Sayer, Jerry Rafferty, Richard and Linda Thompson, Eric Clapton, and Pink Floyd's Roger Waters. And you'll certainly remember his solo hit in the 70s, Wide-Eyed and Legless. He's currently working on new material and experimenting with live streaming gigs. This gig's been organised because we're not working now properly till April of next year. So the Hideaway, a club in Streatham, fantastic club, uh, has got a facility and set up to stream a gig. And they've allowed us that facility. That's going to be it for us till next April. So we are really going to enjoy it. We've had a great time rehearsing. Haven't seen the band since April uh, of, of this year. It was great to meet everybody. It was so good to play. Oh, You've dear. missed it, obviously. You've uh, missed playing. It's all, it's, all I've, it's all I've done ever since I left school. On different levels, some successful, not, some not so successful. But to not play at all. No, I've never done that before. Five, six months of not playing at all. I mean, I sit at home, I've been writing. I got enough material for two albums, but accumulated since 2013. Not, not since the breakdown, but finished in the breakdown. And uh, I practice a lot to get better. So. so that new material, and that's great. I mean, that must be 20-odd songs or so. When are we going to see some of those come to light? Uh, who knows? Um, I really make a living through playing live uh, and in front of people. And we sell our material, the stuff that we record, in front of people. I don't really get um, played on the radio that much. I don't make a living from that. I make it through playing. So I'll think about what I spend my money on to get the return off. I'm working on that now. The next time I make an album, I'm going to really enjoy making it. There's going to be a good bit of fun involved. And I'm going to make it because I want to make it because I'm going to pay for it. Makes absolute sense, and why not? On the streaming gig then, what are we going to have in the set? Well, it, normally we play for two and a bit hours, so I've had to reduce the set by a half. So I hope I picked the half. that people. Obviously, someone's going to say, why didn't you play that, why didn't you play that? Well, we got a lot of material, so basically what they're going to get is the tip of the musical iceberg, not the iceberg. So it can only be that, that amount. I do about four instrumentals from the 60s. I'm going to pick one. I do uh, loads of soul songs. I'm going to pick one. I'm going to pick uh, definitely one, two, three, maybe four Amen Corner songs. A couple from my solo stuff, a couple that I've recorded recently. Well, 2006, that's recent for me. And one from 2013. And then just a, a couple that I just want to play. And hopefully we get them all in. Well, you've chosen some songs for us today uh, which are important for you. And in fact, you've chosen an instrumental song from the 60s by The Shadows. So should we start with that? Yes, please. Why Dance On? It was one of those records along with uh, I'll Never Get Over You by Johnny Kidd that I just couldn't fathom what guitar playing was. Uh, and I loved that melody. In fact, Dance On features, the, a piece of Dance On features in, in a song I wrote called Dance On, funny enough. Not, not that uh, it's in any of the lyrics, but there's the signature of... Uh, and I found that songs I heard when I was growing up mean as much to me now if you put dance on if you start playing it now i know exactly where i'll be in the house i know exactly where i'll be sitting and i'll be looking at that little dance set record player with it going around absolutely think this is rocket science 
What else was on your dance set when you were a kid growing up? Oh, it was actually it was my father that bought the records, Pinexa, Pinexa Records, and it was Lonnie Donegan and whew, the effect that that man had. And I got luckily my parents. We went to uh, uh, Margate, and Lonnie Donegan was performing. I had no idea with the Burnham's girl. Des O'Connor was the compere, and uh, he took us to the show. And I saw Lonnie playing live. Uh, it had impact. Um, but none as much as hearing putting on the style Battle of New Orleans, does your chewing gum lose its flavour? I mean, it's not it's not Shakespeare, but it is. To me, you could play me Bach, you could play me anything, you know. But where's Montgomery? Whoever it is, you put Lonnie Donegan on, and I'm gone. It's amazing how many artists have been affected by Lonnie Donegan. You know, not Elvis, yeah. you know, not Chuck Berry, not Fats Domino, Lonnie Donegan, who was doing skiffle, very basic stuff, really. Yeah, but he had something. I was lucky enough to eventually get to play with him too, but yes, I liked Elvis, and yes, you get into Chuck Berry, but the one that kicked it all off, you know, on that dance set on a Sunday when you could smell the roast beef, and out comes uh, put it, put it on the style... I played with Van Morrison for six months and on one of the gigs, Lonnie was a guest at Wembley at the stadium and uh, so I got to rehearse with him and go, and he had, this must have been 1990 it was, and he was still as good, if not better. At rehearsal, he started singing, um, fall in love, I'm never gonna fall, and I'm thinking, why is he singing that? Because he wrote it, that's why he's singing it, and what a song. So you're listening to all this music on the dance set and then Amen Corner happened. I mean, you formed Amen Corner. Yep, yep. That must have been 60, early part of 66. Keeping in mind, I started playing in 1964. February the 28th, I know the exact date. That's impressive, you know, the exact day. Well, it, yeah, thanks to Bill Wyman, that is, because oh, yeah. uh, I went to see a package tour with Mike Sand, Billy Davis, Jet Harris was on the bill, Burn Elliott and the Fenmen and the Leroy's. Remember all of that? And the Rolling Stones. And that's the night that did me. They started off with talking about you. I knew they did. Uh, and then Bill, in his big coffee book about the Rolling Stones, you've got that particular date and the set list. And I was right, they did start with talking about you. So that's when I started. 66, early part of 66, I formed Amen Corner. Uh, October of 66, I'm in London playing in the clubs. 67, Ginos comes out. It's in the charts. It's, it seemed like, well, this is just what you do. You made it sound so easy. Ah, I thought it was. I found out later how lucky we were. <laughs> what do you think had all the planets aligned that Amen Corner suddenly had so many hits so quickly? Because the people who we were dealing with, who were not particularly nice people, uh, were insistent that we were going to be famous. And uh, they made sure we were famous. And what did they do to make sure you were famous? That you can tell me. Very little, really, I suppose. Um, strings were pulled, um, and there were too many clubs and not enough bands to play, so we could, we played a lot, and the focus was on a small sort of teenage group of people. Uh, they focused that really well. It, we were at the right time. It could have been these people that we were involved with. We signed one bit of paper got signed to another person, that bit of paper, and that person then sold it on to somebody else. So it's, it was at 1969 that we managed to break up and get rid of that bit of paper. But they could have picked somebody else. Don't get me wrong, we were, we were right for the spot, but there were plenty who were right for the spot. But you needed, you needed that extra little bit of help. And also you had the look. I mean, you were clean-cut lads. You yeah. looked right for the time too. We were, we were seven 
kids from, well, one was from Derby, seven kids who just wanted to play and didn't focus on any of the business. And if we had focused on the business and said, Oi, where's our money? What's going on here? They'd have kicked us out and found somebody else. So our ignorance helped us, you know. And, and the truth is, what would I have done with that money? Nothing good. Take it from me. I like the honesty, Andy. I no, really it's do. True. It's true. You signed to DRAM, which was part yeah. of Decca, and you had Ben Me, Shake Me, yeah. and High in the Sky. Big hit records. Yeah. What did it feel like having those hits in the chart? Oh, it's fabulous. Apps, it couldn't have been a better time. The wheel, the old musical wheel, had not turned that much. And um, there we were. It wasn't musically rewarding. In, in the, if we did a gig, uh, certainly at the height, we would start... But sometimes we play for five minutes or something, ten minutes. It wouldn't make any difference. Nobody listened. It was the level of screaming. As soon as we struck the signature of whatever the song was, it was Bend Me, Shape Me, High in the Sky, Hello Susie, whatever. They went crazy. I said, and most of the time I didn't sing. I'd sort of wander around the front shaking hands and pounding my hair. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you were very yeah. young then. I mean, you know, all these girls screaming at yeah. you. You've you got these big hit records. Yeah. Did it go to your head a bit? Oh, good God, no. I didn't, uh, I didn't get it. And what you have to realise as well, as many people who are telling you they like you, there is plenty out there that want to tell you that they don't like you. It's, don't, don't, you know, people only see the one side. Well, I'm telling you, we, yeah, uh, you. We had, a, we had quite a bit of that. Uh, and we were busy in the bubble. We weren't out of that bubble. We didn't go out to, to you know, to, to walk around. You couldn't walk around. So all you were were seven people living in a house, or a hotel, then a house, then another house, with the door shut and the curtains pulled. And then you went out to play. And then you came back, you shut the curtains, you shut the door, stayed in the bubble. You know, it wasn't like you were walking around going, oh, look at me. Oh, oh isn't that him? Yeah, no, you didn't do but that. Not much of a life, really. Um, no, it was still fabulous. You know, yeah, you know, it's all, all you want. And then, then, unfortunately, I just realized I wasn't doing anything. I was, um, we'd, you know, two hours to a gig, play for 20 minutes and come back. And I was singing, I wasn't doing it, practice singing. Well, that's fairly obvious, I think I didn't practice singing. I'm still not practicing singing. Um, but some said, well, you need to do some vocal action. I don't, want to bo- I don't want to think about singing, I just want to do it. It doesn't matter, you know, singing's not, it's a subjective thing. You either like it or you don't. I've liked some very bad singers in my time. And I put myself in that category, not, not of the Ray Charles. You know, you listen to Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder. Well, singers, Andy Favour the Lord, tell him to open his mouth, will you? You know. There you go. Did you enjoy being on stage? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then it became, believe it or not, it became something we'd, we'd look for a reason not to do it. You know, we're only all, because by the end we had a Daimler limousine and we're heading up the motorway and we get a flat tyre. We're going to Sheffield or something and you think, should we turn around? <laughs> because nothing was happening. I mean, everything was happening, but nothing was happening. We get there, you know, they open the door and we walk on the stage. You judge a good gig or a bad gig by how many more had fainted than the night before. You know. Um, yeah, no, it was wonderful, but there was no... Um, it didn't seem to be for anything I was doing, and I needed to do something. I, needed, I was a guitar player before I formed Amen Corner. Uh, I stopped playing when I got there, because when I put the band together, I put Clive and Neil, uh, my brother-in-law, I might not who's not with us anymore, God bless him, um, I put them together. They came as a unit from a group called the Deckers. So, and I looked and I went, oh, right, well, but I'll just sing then. And I liked that because I didn't have to worry about breaking a string or tuning the guitar. I quite liked prancing about just 
not doing anything. But a couple of years of prancing around, not doing anything, it's there's got to be there's got to be a reason for it. That's all for me. So Ben Me Shake Me High in the Sky, big hit, and then you left Decker, but actually that wasn't a bad move at all because the move was actually to your benefit. It, it was to our benefit, but it was nothing to do with us. We only moved because Don Arden, who we, he was the second person we got sold to, sold us to Andrew Oldham, and he took the money, whatever the deal was, 50 grand or whatever then, he took the money, but we got away from Don. So he sold you like football players, effectively, you think? It, well, yeah, well, I think he sold us more like slaves oh, than dear. football players. Well, Don Arden does have a reputation. Yeah, in my mind, he earned that reputation. Um, but we were glad to get rid of him. So we were, he could have the money as long as we were away from him. Then we go to Immediate, which is Andrew Oldham, happy to be part of the industry of music happiness. Or some, something like that was their, their slogan. No, happy to be part of take your money and put it into our account. So Hello Susie was on Immediate. Fleetwood Mac were on Immediate with Man of, oh, what a rock, Man of the World. What a world uh, that song that is. Yeah. 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 Uh, Humble Pie were on there as well. It was a good time, Pete Arnold. It was a good time. Uh, David Bowie at one, one point too. It was an exciting time. To be on that label, but <laughs> but he put that company into liquidation, then moved stuff to New York, and then put himself as the biggest creditor. And I remember going in one Christmas with a band to try and get some money, and we, we, we never got any money. We never got any money. Never mind. So uh, money so, was moving around, but not towards you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All the way through. All the way through, we made money from playing live. Now that money we got, which enabled us to up to a point to pay our rent. At the end, we owed a lot of money to Mr. Hartog in uh, Harrow-on-the-Hill, where we lived. Uh, and then an extension. Then when we'd gone, we got another deal with RCA, and that paid off our debt. We had about 10, 15 grand's worth of debt by the time we finished. Which was a lot in those days. Yeah, it was, and it was, it was slightly worrying. About it. But you had number one with Paradise, oh, yeah. which must have been a great time. Well, it was. It was, it was pretty special. Unfortunately, we weren't in the country when it was number one, so... Again, it's that thing of you're in the bubble and you're just doing. It's like when I walk around now and I hear records that I like in a supermarket and I go, wow, wouldn't that be great to be heard in a supermarket? Well, we were, but we weren't working around in the supermarket. That's, you know... You weren't aware it was being played in the supermarket or on the radio or whatever. So it's... It's yeah, it's something we missed. We missed out on, but it, yeah, no, we we had a number one, and uh, and I loved that song. I didn't write that song. It was uh, it was an Italian song. La Ragazza '77 was the version I heard, um, and I loved it. And when I came back to to making my own albums in 2006, someone in a radio station found the original copy of that. But we, God, grief! It was like note fun. It sounded everything was the same except. It was me singing. We hadn't done anything original on it. Didn't uh, matter, though. No, no, it didn't matter. And we did a good I thought we did a good job. It's a good hit record. Still sounds good. Yeah, I love it. I do. I'll play that in a set. I'll be playing that, definitely. Um, There's a couple I have to play because they're really... Ginos was the first record that stayed with me throughout. Uh, Half as nice as stayed with me. The other ones we kind of bring in and bring out. Wide-Eyed is obviously in there. And Hymn for My Soul, a song I wrote... uh, on Sweet Soul for Music. That's always going to be in there too. So, Amen Corner broke up. Why did that happen? It's the only way we could get away from uh, Immediate and Andrew Oldham in that they'd gone into liquidation, but they were going to be bought out by EMI. So anybody on there 
would be gone straight over to the catalogue. Now, we were signed, luckily, because of all... Although Don did sell us to Andrew Oldham, uh, he sold the band, Amen Corner. That's one of the things we stipulated, he sold the band. So the only way out was to break the band up. So we broke the band up, and uh, we didn't get... You know, we weren't part of that stock that got sold over to, to EMI. But also, a time had come. You know, we'd, 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 we'd had our... You know, I think High in the Sky and Bend Me Shake Me were two hits in one year. Uh, four top ten hits, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 just fabulous. It, we we were popular, and by the definition of popular, there comes a time when, you know, that oh well, that's it. Oh, it's him again, is it? You know, you become you know a parody of yourself. And uh, I think we'd had our time. It was good, fabulous. Fifteen minutes, it really was. Quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Because it was changing, and we were going down. Absolutely. You could tell Led Zeppelin had just formed. Fleetwood Mac was starting, the Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac was starting to nearly make as much money as us, which is unheard of. You know, I mean, they hadn't had a Need Your Love So Bad and all of that. It sort of come out, but they were on the circuit making good money. You know, we were a pop band. We were meant to make that kind of money, not you. Uh, so things are changing. So you formed Fairweather and you yeah. had some success with Fairweather. Yeah, we did. Luckily, um, RCA... Uh, signed us and gave us enough money to pay off our debt. Um, then we moved into this fantastic house in Elstree in about 48 acres, a Norwegian barn. Had a fabulous time there. Uh, Natural Sinner was the record that came out. That was that was a hit. And then uh, then we toured a bit, and it just all became a bit of a grind. And the the band were unhappy and. Uh, I certainly blew the keyboard player was unhappy he came into my room one night and he said um, I want to leave and I said well alright then and he said well aren't you going to ask me to stay I said no you want to leave you want to leave you leave you want to stay you stay it's as simple as that uh, so things were getting a little and he's done okay for himself he oh, played with the Straubs he played oh, with the Bee Gees Blue Weaver done okay oh listen he, funny thing was I'd go to America playing you know as a side man with, with Roger Waters or something and I'd get there and they were in their houses on the waterfront because yeah no they did they did they became tax exiles I mean Blue now I see Blue every not every time sometimes when we go to Germany and he's got a house in, in Germany and a house in, uh, in Spain you know no, they did fine but we had a hammered organ and five people and some of the clubs, you know, big stairs and you needed four people. And the argument was over. Well, I carried that last night. I said, well, I did my best. It just became little things in the end. The colour of people's socks gets you in the end. So they dropped me off at Paddington at one point and uh, I said, I'm going home. And I went home. And that was it. The colour of people's socks. I notice you're not wearing any. Um, I'm wearing blue. I'm not sure what that says. But let's move on to the first Andy Fair with a Low album I bought. And this was a big album, was La Booga Ruga. Yeah, I love, in fact, definitely, that's another one I always play in the set too. Glyn John's, Ramport Studios, The Who Studio that was. And I also uh, been in that studio with The Who on Who Are You. I, I got asked by Glyn and Pete to come and sing some backing vocals. So you're on that song, are you? That's me. That's you. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, it's me, it's me, Pete, John, and Billy Nichols. Oh, yeah. I will and, listen more carefully next time I play. That. Yeah, uh, I've, I've been to a few Who shows too, and that I think they use the actual bit of vocal too. So, uh, so it's good memory. Very, very good memory. Loved that studio. Loved working with Glyn. Did Bebop and Holler with Glyn. Sweet Soulful Music in 2006. So, and yeah, that time with A and M after Spider Jiving. 
the Boogarooga, things started to turn a little different then. Um, more professional and maybe you weren't being fleeced so much? You oh, no, yeah, no, it was better. It was better. Yeah. It, it wasn't great because when, when it comes to the musical cake, you've got to look at it in the round and you're realising you're getting just a tiny bit of a slither of a sponge there uh, and all the, the vast amount of the cake, if you look at it in that, goes elsewhere. But there you go. Yeah, it was an exciting time because A&M uh, at that time gave me Carte Blanche to go and make my album. Sent me to San Francisco for the first one, Glyn Johns for the second one, uh, <coughs> and allowed me to grow. You know, uh, then Bebop and, uh, and Harlan, no, things started to really change there. Well, wh- wh- you know, what are you doing? What, where's the single? Where's the... Things started to be... Do they put pressure on you for oh, singles? Yeah. Well, they just put pressure on uh, everybody to, to cut back. Uh, punk had come along. Um, and there was a famous phrase going round about how you know you could walk into a record company, 78 this is, and fire a shotgun, you'd be very lucky if you hit anybody. Because th- they'd cut down so much back catalogue, uh, lost leaders, whatever, no, what's it? Um, it used to be in a record company, someone go in the, in the office, in the, you know, in the management, I like him, I think we should go with him. I like it. And then, well, I don't know, no, I, I'd like to go. Just got feel, yeah. Just one, okay, good. By 78, they needed everybody in that room to say, and if everybody didn't say yes, even the bloody tea person, notice I said person, even the tea person, if they didn't agree, it was gone. Right, gone. So they are not by committee? Yeah, as opposed to that. That I feeling, yeah, I, believe I believe in yeah, that. I believe yeah, in him. Yeah. I, I think we should. But you had a hit. I mean, look, they must have been quite happy with you because Wide Eyed and Legless was a hit. Yes, 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 it was a hit. Um, and I had um, another one called Champagne Melody, which got a lot of radio play, but not big enough for them. Not, not big enough. Mind you, I think I was still paying back for spider jiving because I made that in San Francisco. So, and that is the truth. I was still paying back for it. So, um, yeah, we were doing all right, but we, we hadn't got into the black. <laughs> From Lonnie Donegan, then Soul came in. Sam and Dave, they came to Cardiff, played the, the Capitol. Otis Redding came, Booker T, uh, Arthur Connolly on the Stax tour. Saw that three times. And sitting in my room, on the, still on the dance set, playing it, the first album, Otis Blue. Oh, a phenomenal singer. Uh, I would go to a gig, we had a thing called a dance set, a, a record player. But a 45 record player, but a transistor radio, you put the 45 in. I'd have, I would have that on my ear as we're going in the van, going to the gig, listening to, listening to Otis on the way. It wasn't just Otis. It was Booker T, it was Duck Dunn, uh, Al Jackson. Uh, it was how to... I use that as the template of how you put a rhythm section together and how you make a record. And I only wish it, I could do... That's how you make it sound, too. Because, I, phew, yeah, no, they had a sound. And then the, the, the whole... They, they were all out there. There were, there were loads of them. Solomon Burke... Lee Dorsey, I loved Lee Dorsey. I saw Lee Dorsey playing in Cardiff too. Oh, fabulous. Your PR lady sent me some material, and uh, on the album there, there's some interesting covers. You've covered When a Man Loves a Woman, the Percy yeah. Slade song. Yes, wow. Route 66 you've yeah. covered. Yeah. So glad. Very R&B. Oh, yeah. You put down uh, Route 66. That's the first guitar solo I ever learnt properly. And I play it in my set. And on that version of Route 66 that you have, I play Keith Richards' solo night after night, note for note, hopefully. That's the intention. That's the effect that that, uh, that track had on me. 
What is it about that song? Because, I mean, in the UK, no one really knows what Route 66 is. We, we know in America, but here we don't really know. But the song somehow has a resonance. It's, it's, it's an emotion thing. For me, I, I make my friend, who I won't mention, said, yes, Andy, your work was a lovely, but uh, enunciation, you need to enunciate a little better. And I'm going, no, your records that you make, they're meant to listen to the words. When I sing, they're meant to just go, oh, I like this. I don't know what it's all about, but I like this. Uh, and that's the, that, that for me is the difference. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't know what Route 66 was about, but I knew the excitement. I knew what was going on. Something was going on. And I was right, because, you know, the, the history of the Rolling Stones speaks for itself. Now, you spent a lot of time working with George Harrison. Yeah, toured, toured, toured Japan with George in, uh, in 90. I uh, couldn't believe it. Be asked to be in that band. Uh, How did that happen? How did you get asked? Phone call from Roger, my good friend Roger Forrester, who was Eric Clapton's manager said, uh, hello, boy, uh, I've just been speaking to George and he wants you to play all the slide parts on his new up-and-coming tour, uh, going to Japan. Eric's band are back in and uh, he wants you to be in that. And I went, oh. But I, uh, it's a long story, but I don't play slide guitar, you know, and, and I had to kind of work out whether I own up and lose the gig or can you get me George's number? Can we speak? Can I have a word? So I got the number, and we did speak, and this is exactly what he said. Well, I, I can't do the accent, but he said, well, I've never heard you pay, but everybody seems to like it. Why didn't you come up and see, you know, why didn't you come to Friar Park? So I did come up to Friar Park, and I arrived in my Volkswagen Polo, which I had at the time, and I go through the big gates, Friar Park's a phenomenal place, right up to the door, and out comes George, and he goes, you have to drive that. <laughs> and I said, that's my car. Oh, right, come on, let's get in. And it went on like that. And he was gracious, funny, fantastic songwriter. Nobody could write songs like George. So we toured then, came back, did a concert in London for the Natural Law Party at the Albert Hall. Spent a lot of time with him. Yeah, and it's sad loss. But yeah, a great memory, lovely man. You're listening to Podcast Radio. Roger Waters, who, again, you've worked with for many years and become a very close associate yes. of yours. Yeah, 23 years I've worked with Roger, but I first met Roger on the, my first big tour that Eamon Corner did, where Jimi Hendrix was top of the bill. Jimi Hendrix, The Floyd, The Move, The Nice, Air Apparent, and Outer Limits. What a lineup! That all is. on one, All on one bill. 19 to 21 dates around the UK. Uh, two shows a night, apart from the Albert Hall, which was just a one-off show. They, <laughs> The Floyd, were... Uh, what can I say? I didn't get it at all. Absolutely didn't get it at all. Well, didn't get the music? No, not at okay. all. And uh, they, did not, they did not associate with anybody. I'm not even sure they associated with each other. Because um, Sid was there then, and I think Sid would, was at that time in a world of his own. Well, Sid did go off into a slightly strange place. Yes, he did. Yes. He did. Uh, so they would start the set-off. This is the irony for me, is that they would start the set-off with set the controls for the heart of the sun which became, later on, when I started, one of my favourite numbers. But then, I don't get this, where's the backbeat? Uh, and so course, you didn't buy Dark Side of the Moon in 1973? No, 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 I didn't. No, and no. I, I was busy, funny, because I, uh, I did the Dark Side of the Moon tour, and it was asked, you know, did you, what did you think? I said, well, I was busy being me. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I knew about it, but I was busy being me. Um, That's a good answer. And, and, and I've also um, now know so much about the flight, you know, First tour with Roger, I think it was 83, 80, no, 85, uh, pros and cons of hitchhiking across America, you know, and I went, I, there I am, I'm playing these Floyd songs that I've never heard before. 
Well, I know him now. I know him inside out, and I love him. I might. I really, I really got to know, you know, about that style of music and, and what was being done there, and how many people. I mean, sometimes we went to India on one of the tours. There's like thirty thousand people, and uh, it was, well, the wall, 1990, was I think was. It's nearly 400,000 people. Yeah. Oh, phenomenal. Probably yeah. their most commercial, I guess, The Wall. Um, yeah. Um, but a good album and, you know, Yeah, um, But single. production levels, I don't know anybody that could put a show on like Roger. I'm serious. I've seen The New Wall. Uh, I went to Boston to see it and I went to Denmark to see it. And uh, it technically has just gone to another level. It's phenomenal. What's Roger Waters like as a man? I mean, we don't know much about the people in Pink Floyd, really. What's he like yeah, as an individual? They like, they like that. They like that. They like that. And certainly Roger liked that until he went out on the road as Roger Waters. And people said, well, who's he? As we did on the Radio Chaos tour. The Pink Floyd were actually out and Roger was out. We were on Radio Chaos touring. We were playing to some very thin audiences at that time. Uh, and of course, the Floyd were selling out arenas. We were not selling out arenas. I used the Royal we there. Yeah, why not after this amount of time? It sort of clicked, whereas he wouldn't talk to anybody. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, I'll sign that and just became more open about letting people know who Roger Waters was. And then the Pink Floyd were letting people know, you know, who Roger was. Well, no, he's the guy who wrote, oh, did he? All right, so we're going to see. So it started off thin, and then we're playing at 30,000, 40,000, you know, and then each tour built and built. So now they know, they definitely know who Roger Waters is. And, and he's a lovely man, too. Listen, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a real true friend, really good. And very, very funny, although I'm not sure... Funny, he, really? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not sure he'd, he'd like me saying that. I'm, I think he would, yeah. No, he is, he, he's got... Because he's not funny on stage. No, 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 that's, ser yeah. that's serious. He's just got a fantastic sense of humour. No, music is it's not just serious, it's very serious. You've worked with so many other big names. Any other highlights, people you've just loved working with and would love to work with again, maybe? Uh, there's a lot, but I mean, I mean, I was in a band with uh, Edie Brickell, Paul Simon's wife. So it's Edie Brickell, Steve Gadd and Pino, myself. We made three albums. Uh, I don't think the third one came out. I'd love to revisit that. Getting that work with Emmy Lou and Linda, uh, Ron Stat, that was pretty special. Um, yeah, no, Chris Rea was, I did the Road to Hell tour. Chris, Chris was, he's great company. He's another one with a very dry sense of humour. Uh, so I enjoyed that very much. From Middlesbrough. Yeah, yeah, and it's still there. It's absolutely, and Georgie Fame. Oh, oh Georgie Fame, right. Oh, yeah. Georgie Fame is on uh, two of my albums. He's on the, the uh, La Booga Ruga, and he's on Bebop and Hollow. And I became a Blue Flame. Uh, you and, were a Blue Flame, were you? Yes, I, be oh. I became eventually. Not only were you on the Who, you were a Blue Flame as well. Yeah, <laughs> and, so, and this is, you know, I used to dream of being a Blue Flame. I'm serious. It was one of the, down the Flamingo, I, I, we visited the Flamingo in 1966, you know, from all the way from Wales, went up early on. So then with Bill Wyman's Rhythm Kings, and with Bill Wyman's, we just did his 80th a couple of years ago at uh, the O2. Fame's a big part of that. I mean, you know, we jump on that thing with Bill. He enables us to be part of his thing. So I spent a lot of time with him. He's recorded Wide Eyed and Legless twice, uh, Georgie Fame, and fantastic versions. Yeah, I'm, I'm honoured. Very proud and honoured. Very nice when someone covers a song like that and someone of, of that yeah. calibre does yeah. so. It's great. Now, you didn't mention Eric Clapton, and Eric Clapton's your last choice. Mm, yeah. Well, where do I start with that? Poster on the wall. You know, guitar player looking up saying, oh, man, Eric Clapton. 
This is the last thing he wants to hear, I might add. Um, but that came from the George Harrison tour. Uh, it was Eric's band that was back in George. Came back to England, uh, and then near enough said... Um, in fact, it was for the rehearsals of the George tour, so before we'd even gone, after the first day, he at lunch, a lunch break, he came up and said, uh, will you come and join me at the Albert Hall? I'm doing these gigs in January, you know, will you come and... And I, I did, I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm serious. So I'm going to shake now, and when we shake, I'm going to phone my wife, and then that's it, it's a done deal. Yes, and that was it, and I stayed there. Unplugged was the first thing, and then it went, which is phenomenal, I love Unplugged. And then it went on for 13 years. In fact, I did record his last album with him, because I'm in and out of the band, more out now. Um, I still do, which is 2016, toured Japan with him. Uh, I love him. It's, it's, it's sort of a... It's, it's, it's funny, it's like one of those brother things. It's, um, You're like his brother? It's you feel it, like that? Oh, yeah, yeah no, I nice. do, I do. It's, um, it, because the way he plays, to me, music, is a, certainly as a guitar plays, is a language. You know, there's a lexicon of notes you can pick. And some people pick too many notes, some people pick the wrong notes. But when he plays, I understand completely what he's trying to say. For me, there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. I get it. All those rehearsals, all those albums, over 500 gigs, God knows how many albums. Videos, I get it. And I've always got it, and I'm still getting it. Well, we, we look forward to you doing real gigs in yeah, person, yeah, hopefully yeah, next yeah. year. Uh, Andy Feverlow, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. It was lovely. Absolutely lovely. That's Andy Fairweather Low, and we look forward to his new album and some live in-person gigs, hopefully next year. Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on Private Lives. Steve Hackett was the lead guitarist for Genesis on six albums, including Nursery Crime, Selling England by the Pound, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and Trick of the Tail. He joined the band in 1970, following an ad he put in Melody Maker, which read, Imaginative guitarist, writer, seeks involvement with receptive musicians determined to strive beyond existing stagnant forms. When I met Steve earlier in the UK this year, he was still on a massive worldwide tour. People do ask, how do you manage to sleep in strange beds all the time? And I usually say, well, by the time you've done a show that's three hours long, you you do fall over, you are exhausted at the end of it. So um, whatever the bed, wherever it is, um, it's um, you have to be adaptable or else you, you couldn't do it. So um, yeah, you've got to get through the first 24 hours. Once you've done that, then the rest of it's easy. And when you come off stage, do you need time to come down? I mean, can you sleep straight away? Um, I normally find that I put um, a TV on, and um, that helps um, just to wind down a bit. Um, yeah, um, I don't have any ritual afterwards. I mean, uh, most of the time I, I prefer not to drink on tour. Um, and... Um, you, you need to stay fit. That's that's what you what you got to do. So um, I I like to write. Um, I like to have books around. Um, when you're travelling, it's essential, I think, to um, to be in two places at once. Otherwise, you know, you're in the back of the uh, whatever it is, the the plane, the car, the, the boat, whatever your method of travel. And um, it's nice to be in two places at once. So there's some fodder for the mind, so passports to other worlds, as books, is, books are, is, is an important thing for me. And what about stamina? I mean, all that travelling, you're literally on a stage, you go back to the hotel late, you sleep, you then get up, you probably then go to the next location, then you're yeah. on stage that evening. That's a pretty punishing schedule. 
Well, I think that when I was first doing shows, um, when I was in my 20s, um, I tended to party every night, you know, have a few drinks, used to smoke, uh, wake up with a hangover the next day, uh, do it all over again. Um, but um, what I find now is, is that um, uh, provided you, you, you prioritize health, um, there's a very good chance I could continue doing this for the next 200 years. That's the idea. Two hundred years. That, that's, yeah, that's, only, that's, yeah, that, that's yeah. pretty. No, actually, I did have a, a, a um, an uncle who lived until he was one hundred and eight. One hundred and eight. Uh, so you I come know. from great genes. I come from great genes on my mother's side, the Jewish side of the family. Um, they tend to be long livers, so I, I currently have a, um, a a great aunt who is um, one hundred and one. Visited to her a while back. Um, she doesn't remember how old she is. But she knows that she's of, of a great age, and um, she's a lovely lady. Um, and as I say, we had an uncle who was the, um, he was the oldest ex-serviceman from the First World War. And in fact, um, up until when he was 107, he used to go over to Flanders Field every year and give a speech. But on his 108th year, there was just a gathering of the clans and uh, to visit him and... Um, um, he was a remarkable old boy. Well, that's uh, fantastic. So we're going to have you on tour many more years, which is fantastic news. Uh, yes. Uh, and keep doing it and keep staying fit. That's really important. Let's go back to the mm. young Steve Hackett. Indeed. Um, and <coughs> when you were young, you had access to a number of instruments, I think, before the guitar really became your thing. Um, my, my dad played a number of instruments, but I remember him playing harmonica. So when I was a kid, I was trying to be just like him from the age of two onwards. And um, so they started buying, buying me harmonicas. And, um, and then I think when I was five, I said to him, I'd like a push button harmonica because I realized they were missing notes. And um, many years later, I was having this conversation with, with Larry Adler. I said, um, um, you know, how do you feel about blues harmonica? Because, you know, you've got the ability to bend notes and the vibrato and cupping it and the wah-wah. All of that, he said. I didn't want to play a, a, a harmonica with missing notes, so I understand. I understood his approach, which was, uh, in a way, you know, classical, and and he, he was able to sit down and play um, rhapsody and blue, left hand on the piano, right hand on the uh, on the harmonica, no harmonica holders for him, and um, and playing chromatic harmonica, and um, and it was stunning to behold seeing him do that. At what point then did you pick up the guitar and realise that was your instrument of choice? Well, it's about ten years later, really. Um, uh, it was something about that. I, when I was twelve, I was just about big enough to get my arms around my dad's guitar. He he brought one back from Canada. Um, he bought a guitar in in 1958. At that time, I was eight years old. Um, he brought it back to England, and. Um, I was interested in it, and I was buying records by The Shadows, interested in what they were going to do next, Apache, FBI, all of that stuff. And um, the first record I ever bought was, was Man of Mystery by, by The Shadows, and um, I think it was the theme tune for the um, Tales of Edgar Lusgarden, I think. There's, there's something about that melody, the da 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 ba 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 da da da, descending sequence, and uh, a clever chord sequence 
uh, almost Bond-like in its um, execution, really. Um, uh, so that was it. That was early guitar for me, 12 years old. Um, by the time I was 14, I started getting bored with playing simple melodies on the two uh, um, uh, bass notes, and I asked my dad to show me three chords. Um, and that was it for me, you know. I, 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 I got into it big time from the age of 14 onwards. I, I tried very hard to... Um, to make that work. I mean, he said you would get calluses, but I never did. I just had open wounds because the, the, the action was so brutal on this guitar and the strings were really heavy. Didn't put you off at all, obviously, no. No, no, you had to go through that. And a lot of guitarists tell the same story. I think Robert Fripp tells the same story that, you know, early guitars, brutal action, but you fight through it and then you realise that you don't have to fight quite that hard. But I think it's part of the um, rite of passage. Who else at that time was influential to you? I mean, you talked about blues, so I guess there'd be yes. a lot of blues artists there. Uh, blues happened a little bit later, I think. Um, I mean, I was very vaguely aware of blues with um, you know, Tommy Steele, never felt more like singing the blues, which was uh, an early English cover, and I think it's the 1950s, and I liked that. Uh, funnily enough, I liked Elwood Presley singing Heartbreak Hotel. I remember being more drawn to that the spooky side of it uh, I thought this is slow and powerful and weird this is good and then of course once the Rolling Stones hit the circuit um, I realised they were doing things with the harmonica that I couldn't do I, I, I didn't really understand what was this bending the notes business and then I, I bought a blues harp and I was I was aware that I I learned that very quickly to be able to bend those notes and um, self-taught then self-taught yes um yeah, I, I, I believe in this thing about being self-taught. I, I think that if you want to learn from others, you can get videos. And um, I think a lot is learned by a purpose of example of other people. If someone else can do it, then I ought to be able to do it. That's my take on it. Without investing anyone with the title master, you master me pupil, you guru me disciple. I think being self-taught and learning via your own mistakes is perhaps a surer way of, of, of getting there. It's slower. I know it's the road less travelled, um, but I think a lot of, a lot of guitarists are self-taught. We, we're, a, we're a cantankerous lot, really. You know, we, we like to do things the hard way. But also, I guess, it helps you define your own personal style, too. Well, no one's slapping your wrists and saying you can't do that. Therefore, you might occasionally have a breakthrough with techniques that others have not dreamt up yet, such as tapping, which I came up with in 1971, the same year I joined Genesis. So um, it, I think it's worth doing things that you shouldn't, you shouldn't do, just in case others pick up on it, as, as people have done. And um, it's part of the glossary of terms. It's part of the style that, that defines heavy metal. Is there a Stones track then that you can think of that you listen to or particularly demonstrates the harp style that you were trying to emulate and which you couldn't do but you self-taught yourself to do? Yeah, well, on the flip side of their single, Not Fade Away, there was a track by Chuck Berry called Little by Little. And um, I absolutely adored this track. And it's got a great harmonica intro and a great harmonica solo. I think it's Mick playing harmonica on that it's it's really really good but you know Brian Jones was a great harmonica player too so um, I absolutely loved it then love it now and um, I copied the guitar solo and the 
the harmonica solo, I, I wanted to be a Rolling Stone. And also it's the B-side of Not Fade Away, which I was unaware yes. of. I, I mean, that single we know and that song we know, but this is the other side. It's the other side, yeah. The, the original uh, Not Fade Away is a Buddy Holly song, but again, it has great harmonica and um, the, the Stones burst onto the scene with, you know, great verve and... Um, and energy, and they they sounded different. They looked different. Um, women liked them because they were a bit dangerous, and guys liked them because, um, you know, they weren't guys who were being told to get their hair cut. There was no sort of this wasn't a spin-off from English Army thinking. This was um, the new generation of British males, and you could, yeah, you could look like a medieval prince or or, or an androgynous. Um, article yeah uh, um, I, I think it was truly defining in terms of of uh, teenagers at that time wanting to own their own clothes have their own look uh, make up their own rules and um, it wasn't hurting anybody so there was a bit of a a bit of a, a, a British a British re revolution going on at the time but I remember getting into fights in the street with you know people who took exception with the fact that I have my hair long and it was probably a fraction of the length I've got it today. I mean, it was just a little bit over the collar and people were up in arms. I mean, God, you know. It was there are more important things to worry about, surely, than the length of Steve Hackett's hair. You would have thought so, yes. but it, I think it was this idea of the them and us, you know, the us and them, um, as evinced by uh, Pink Floyd later, you know. It, it was a very different world. There were lots of things to set right and, and I think that a lot of positive things came out of the 1960s, multiculturalism, as soon as the Beatles invited in half of India to work with them, um, things were on the change. Um, the mainstreaming of those who'd been marginalised um, was only fair, really. Uh, the music scene had been dominated really solely by the Americans for so long and then the Beatles changed all that and, um, uh, and then got to invite in what was commonly known as the Third World. So. Um, I think that was great, um, and um, and and that's you know quite a legacy that that they they've they've left us all. Um, so you know, once a Beatle fan, always a Beatle fan, and and um, their music progressed extraordinarily as their fame expanded. So did the ideas, and um, uh, you know the the quantum leap from Love Me Do to Eleanor Rigby is is ex extraordinary. How did you get into your first group? Um, well, the first group I made a record with was Quiet World. Um, they were a band that was signed to Pi Records. Um, there were three brothers who all wrote songs together. Um, they were British, but they'd grown up in South Africa, and then they came back to England um, uh, to make it in, in the record business. And um, Pi Records at the time were trying to have hit singles um, most of the time they were having hits with with singles and then they realized that um, things were on the change and albums were becoming more important again you know riding on the coattails of the Beatles um, we we made an album together called the road um, the the guys wrote the songs I occasionally would write a little bit and um, I wasn't looking for same song credits in those days um, and what was uh, nice for me was I was working in a professional studio for the first time 
uh, near Marble Arch, and Pi had a, a terrific studio. Um, in those days, um, you know, Pi were making TV sets. They were building washing machines, fridges, and um, remember that Pi label on various well, things made in our house. Yeah, it was a characteristic label, wasn't that, it? That's it. I mean, it's, it, it seems unthinkable now in, in the age of specialization that w that we're in. Um, but um, they'd signed Mungo Jerry, and ironically, of course, they had a hit single with that in the summertime. It was this huge hit? But they'd signed John McLaughlin, um, and um, it's, it's it's extraordinary, really. I mean, I think he'd just done work with Miles Davis, and uh, he was a hot property, you know, hot shot gunslinger of a guitarist, uh, very talented man. Pre uh, the arrival of Mahavishnu Orchestra and and all the rest, but um, um, Pi Records didn't actually have any success with the album acts that, that, that they signed. Um, but John Schroeder was a very encouraging record producer at that time, and I did one or two things for him. He'd, he'd worked with Jimmy Page, and he said, you know, whenever I was working with Jimmy Page, the, the nice thing about him as a guitarist was whoever's record he was working on, he always gave it his all, and he said it was the same thing if he was on a on a, um, uh, a Tom Jones record or an Emil Ford record. He always gave it his all. And he said, I recognize some of the same uh, qualities in you. So I, I did one or two blues things for him. I don't know if they ever saw the light of day, but but um, I think I was a really slow boy. I, I should have been on the phone to him every five minutes. So I just thought- You mean you just too I just uh, waited for the, I just waited for the phone to ring. You know, I did a, a few sessions for him and um, I thought, oh, that'll keep up. I didn't realise what you've got to do is hustle. And you've got to put yourself forward. And, sadly, um, yes. Sadly, um, uh, but you know that's 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 the young brain. You think, oh, it all happens to me. You know, typical teenage thinking. Um, you know, I, I I should have known better, but um, as a teenager, uh, you don't. You think no. the world's going to come to you. You do, and and um, any teenagers listening, you've got to learn to hustle. That was one thing that impressed me about the young Peter Gabriel. He was, um, as well as the humanitarian and the great inventor that we know now, inventive mind. Um, he was a great hustler. So he would sometimes be late for rehearsals, but that was because he'd be on the phone, hustling journalists. Uh, record companies, etc. He was um, <coughs> very hardworking, um, and I think I think it's very important that every band realizes that it's not just up to the professionals. It's whatever else you can do. So I remember getting advice from I think it was Chris Wright and Terry Ellis who were running Chrysalis at one point, and they were advising us. They were saying. It's quite a good idea if one of the band um, uh, takes up residency in the speakeasy, in a, an after-hours music club. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. And, and it meant that any time uh, a journalist wanted to do an interview, there they were, you could buy them a drink, you could bribe them mercilessly with a scotch and coke. You could um, do that, you'd just be pals. And um, it was... Um, it was good, so it meant that I, unofficially I became the band's publicist. Very, very easy. People say, I'd like to do an interview with your band. Uh, yeah, here's the office number. Yeah, give them a call. Yeah, love to hear from you. Sure. Make it easy, give Make access. It easy. Yeah, sure. That's it. Yeah. And, and um, uh, things don't quite work like that for me these days. Um, 
social media has changed that a bit. Social media has changed that, and 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 I I have lots of busy days, and I don't have that many nights off where we'll go into the West End and you know hang out with with the business um, occasionally, but. Um, uh, and I think it's important to be accessible. I think it's no good people thinking that, um, you know, that they're going to do a Roger Waters, stand behind a wall and, and, and expect the people are going to come to them. Yeah, Floyd had already made it by then. You can do anything once you're on that level of, of Rock Olympus. But um, I think it's important to be personable, available, polite. And, and with fans as well, and make them aware that you consider them to be just as important as you are yourself. So I actually, you know, before a gig, when I meet 30 or so people to sign things and get a, a picture, they say, they say to me, well, don't you find it tiring doing this before a gig? I say, no, it actually relaxes me. I, I want to see what people think. I'm, I, I rather like it. Otherwise, I'll be sitting backstage twiddling my thumbs, doing endless scales, wearing out my fingers, getting twitchy before the gig. But I'm sure What's also, Steve, that's a, a reason for your enduring success. I mean, you're an incredibly long solo career. But let's just go back to Peter Gabriel and about being a bit um, sort of pushy. Because yes. in December 1970, you put an advertisement in Melody Maker in search for a new band. And it says here, um, imaginative guitarist, writer, seeks involvement with receptive musicians, determined to strive beyond existing stagnant music forms. And the person who responded, of course, was Peter Gabriel. Yeah, I, th I think... You see, I didn't just put one ad in. I, I, I was advertising every week for five years. And so I met lots of musicians, lots of near misses. Um, some of the guys were very, very talented, but didn't have time, perhaps, you know, uh, for me. Fair enough. Uh, and uh, my ads originally were blues guitarist, harmonica player, seeks work. Cheap and cheerful. Very simple, clear. Very simple, clear, um, and I got absolutely no work from that. So the ads became more sophisticated over time. More superlatives. That's it. And um, you see, I remember there were two other ads that I remember. You know, this guy used to have in every week, uh, able accordionist, so that he was the very first person at the top of the list with the two A, A's. A B. Yeah. A able accordionist. So two A's. Yeah. Very clever. And. Um, uh, so I, I, I assume he was always in work. Um, but um, I remember another guy who advertised himself saying he was into Pink Floyd and Prokofiev and he was an oboe player. And I thought, this is interesting, mm -hmm. you know. Two Ps as well, then. Yeah. Alliteration. Exactly. And that made it stand out, you know, Pink Floyd and Prokofiev. And I met him and sadly nothing came from it. But um, what did happen with Peter Gabriel? Because I think that was yeah, the he beginning phoned, he of phoned you. Me. He phoned you. So Peter Gabriel called you, and what did he say? He said, "Have you heard of, of our band called Genesis?" And I said, I th "Yeah, I think I've heard of you guys. I haven't seen you live." He said, um, "Have a listen to our album, which is called Trespass, and in particular a track called Stagnation." Um, so um, I think he must have thought that you know the fact that I mentioned stagnant music forms. Um, do you see what I mean? There was that idea yeah. that um, maybe there was that bit of you. synchronicity before I was aware of what the term meant. Yeah. Um, and when you heard the album, you thought, yes, I'd like to be in this band? 
when I heard the album, I was listening to it with, with my brother. We were listening in a, in a, in a, in a booth in a record shop, W.H. Smith, um, Sloan Square, King's Road. And um, we couldn't tell if what we were listening to was guitar or keyboard. That was a good start. I think the idea of the mystical nature of, of, of the Genesis textures had been defined very early on. In fact, it was a collection of 12 strings and occasionally joined by, by keyboard. And, and that made for a very different kind of guitar-based tune. Podcast Radio. You decided to leave the band. Uh, yeah, I, I'd already made a, a solo album in 1975 and um, uh, two guys in the band helped me to make that, both Phil and Mike. Um, and um, I don't think anyone was expecting it to be a hit. And um, um, after that, um, I was being discouraged from you know uh, continuing to do solo albums. They, they didn't want me to have a parallel solo career. And so, so they know, were not happy about that. No, they, they said they you did one or the other, did they? Yes, yes. And um, so you thought I now need to move out, or have stillborn brain children? I can't afford to do that. Yeah, yeah. Because so my the brain was moving faster than the band were. Yes, I think so. And so, um, uh, I think it's important if you if you want to write, um, it, it's it's important to have that creative outlet and. Um, I think it's so important for people within bands to have separate careers because otherwise the band becomes stifling and and um, it becomes too limiting. I mean, basically, if somebody's career takes off while they're in the band, like for Phil Collins, um, several years later, um, it only does good for the band because people come to see the drama and the band. So what's wrong with that? Steve Hackett, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice talking. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Stay listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.